be transparent up front. I think that's that's the most important thing. I I'd much rather you say, look, there is some danger, there is some risk. Let let's be aware of that here, versus making that change, you know, three years down the road. Welcome to the Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. This morning, I am joined by my partner, Wendy Smith. How are you, Wendy? Hi, Megan. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad uh, I have you on again. I love doing podcasts with you. It's it's just fun. Thanks. (laughs) So today we have the pleasure of having Mike Sidlecki on, who is the VP of Claims at Utica Insurance, um, or Utica First Insurance, I should say. And also, he went to law school with Wendy. So Roger Williams grad with me. (laughs) So I'm extra excited that you, you can, you know, you two kind of know each other already. And um, Mm -hmm. so I'm excited to have a conversation with all you uh, to talk about, you know, Mike actually started off as a plaintiff's attorney and now is a VP of claims. So he kind of totally switched gears. Um, And he's going to talk a little bit about that. Also the challenges that, you know, he may, he may have and and benefits to working at Utica, which is a smaller carrier. So, um, you know, really excited to talk to him and dive into all that today. Good morning, Mike. Uh, Thanks for coming on to the Defense Never Rests today. How are you? Good, Megan. How are you? Good. So we have a, I don't know what you have going on here. I'm in South Jersey. We have this pending snow coming in, which is anywhere between one and, you know, six inches. Are you looking at like a foot of snow up there? (laughs) Actually, we're only looking at maybe about five or six inches, um, but I'm from Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and we're supposed to actually get maybe about 12 to 18 inches. We're really supposed to get slammed, I think. Yeah. Isn't Uh, that like a norm up there though? (laughs) <laughs> it is. It is. It's actually, it's unusual because there isn't any snow on the ground up here in Utica. So, I mean, we're used to a lot of snow. There's actually more snow in Massachusetts right now. Yeah. And um, so, so everyone listening knows Mike, Mike is the VP of claims at Utica First Insurance and he's up in Utica, New York right now, but he actually lives in Massachusetts um, and you plan to drive home today. So that should be an interesting drive for you. It should be. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Hoping to get out early enough before the storm. <laughs> so, uh, we're so happy to have you joining us today and a little bit of background for everyone listening. Mike and Wendy is also went to law school together. Um, and I, I believe we're friendly or had shared groups of friends in law school. That's correct. Same people. Yeah. So my first question is, Mike, do you know, have any dirt on Wendy that we can... Uh, <laughs> no. she's, she's too she's too like perfect <laughs> we don't have any we don't have any dirty facts about her <laughs> i paid him before the podcast keep that on the dl is that how you keep keep your squeaky clean image yeah <laughs> i've got but no I dirt love, but i love talking about our professors i mean that just really brings back a lot of a lot of i'd say good memories maybe some nightmares a little bit you know when we were talking about property and you know rules against perpetuity i still have those nightmares every every night i I try to go through them in my head and and uh, i always get always have these dreams about getting called on in class (laughs) are you one of those people that keeps their law school books i am i still have them I have two, I think. I still have my UCC code. It's actually in my office. And I don't remember, I, I may or may not have tax. And I do none of that. <laughs> I, I, de- I definitely have tax. Tax was actually one of my favorite classes. Who'd you have? I, I had Professor Santoro, God rest Love, his soul. He was fantastic. That's fantastic. Who I had. 
fantastic. One of the best. Well, our, I, our tax professor was um, Professor Moroni, who his son is Dermot Moroni. And we always hoped that, you know, Dermot would come in. He didn't. But <laughs> 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 so anyway, so Mike, uh, so you're at Utica first, you know, uh, can you tell us, give us a little background how, how you ended up um, at, at Utica, like your, your, a brief overview of your professional art arc. So Absolutely. <laughs> I started with Utica um, on June 1st of 2020, uh, right during the pandemic. Uh, so things have been a little bit unusual here. Um, I've been coming out to, to New York. We're planning on, on uh, ultimately relocating out to New York. Um, things have just been, you know, strange with the pandemic. We haven't, you know, formally relocated at this point, um, just, you know, because of schooling and, and things like that. Um, prior to Utica First, I worked at Acadia Insurance for about four years as a director of claims in Massachusetts. Uh, prior to that, I worked uh, for Hanover Insurance for about um, eight years in various capacities, either in subrogation as a litigation manager, uh, even as a, a litigation adjuster. And prior to that, I had worked uh, in private practice for a uh, small solo practitioner in Rhode Island, um, doing mostly personal injury work. So, and that's what I think is interesting because it's very rare um, that, I mean, it's more common that you have someone who worked in private practice that goes into claims. I think it's more rare that you have someone who has actually, you know, worked in personal injury on the plaintiff side and then moves over to claims. Um, and is, did you work on the plaintiff side when you were in, doing personal I, injury work? I did, yes. So how was that transition kind of moving from what, like, in claims you, you you know, though they're the enemy, you know, they're, 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 are, you know, we're up by our opposing counsel. And then suddenly now you switch gears completely to the other side. It, it was basically like the same thing, you know, those bad insurance companies are out to get everybody. Um, that's kind of how things were looked at as, you know, the plaintiff's bar, but uh, the transition I think has really gone well. Um, I think it's, it's really helped me kind of provide insight to my claims staff, uh, my claims adjusters, um, Basically, you know, giving them insight as to you know what the claimants, uh, what the plaintiff's bar is looking for, um, and it's also helped kind of mediate some of the disputes. You, you know, we, we want to work together to get cases resolved. Um, cases don't, or cases don't have to be so confrontational, um, and there doesn't have to be an antagonistic relationship between, you know, the, the plaintiff and the defense attorney. You know, we can we can work together to try to get something resolved. So. I think that's really been helpful in that relationship. Um, it's it's also really been um, easy for me to kind of explain, you know, where things are in terms of damages, um, you know, how plaintiffs' attorneys look at things, um, and even to correlate back. Okay, this is how we broke out our damages. You know, we we allocated something for um, temporary uh, disability for eight weeks. We allocated something for total disability for for five weeks, and this is where we came up with our number. So it kind of helps in explaining things. And then um, going back to dreaded civil procedure, it was um, you know a real benefit for me, kind of explaining how the court systems worked, um, how motions worked, um, you know, to our staff, and kind of taking them through that process and teaching them. Really, you know, I, I, I've taught anatomy of a lawsuit to basically all the adjusters or all my managers, so that um, you know they know what to expect from from motion practice and, and how things go um, as far as that goes. And 
And a few things that you said actually uh, stood out to me. Like, first of all, I couldn't agree more as to working with your other side. I, I think you get so much further and so much more accomplished when you're not just like at each other's throat and you're like, okay, we both understand the case. I know what your strengths are. I know, you know, what your angle is going to be. You kind of know where I'm coming from too. Is there a way we can meet in the middle? If there's not, okay, but maybe there is. And I find that you can get a lot further when you try to work together versus like trying to just dig your heels in the sand and make it a, like a full out battle. Not to say there's times that that's not needed, <laughs> but as I think one, one, uh, partner told me, Megan, you attract, you know, more bees with honey. <laughs> I think that's a really good way to look at it. Definitely. And so as for, um, you know, educating your, your team and, uh, the, you know, the rest of your claims team, I mean, from your work experience, as a plaintiff's attorney, what did you find that um, they they put more effort into and they they really used to push their case for you or drive up value that you now use to educate your team as to, okay, this is, you know, we should be expecting this or, or that? I, I think really in terms of evaluating a case, you know, um, how to look at, you know, different types of injuries, whether it's a soft tissue injury or something a little bit more serious. Um, you know, certain carriers use computer programs to come up with, um, you know, analysis. I haven't worked at one of those carriers in, in quite some time. Um, you know, the adjusters here, we, we typically, we, we look at it in terms of, you know, what the injury is, how long they were injured, um, and just kind of explaining, you know, all right, well, plaintiff's firms or plaintiff's firms in this um, jurisdiction usually value things at, at, you know, this dollar threshold. Um, so I, I think it's helped bridge that gap a lot more. So we're not necessarily undervaluing or even overvaluing cases. I think, I think, you know, we've had a lot of settlements, um, and it's really helped with, with training newer adjusters, folks who are coming into the insurance world that, that don't have any, um, experience with that. How do you, how do you evaluate a claim? You know, it's, it's not necessarily three times the medicals. Right. And I think that's like the old archaic, you know, way to do it. And I think you know, we've moved away from that. I think the, the challenge a lot of everyone has is it is subjective. You know, I, I, whenever I evaluate a case and I'll talk to Wendy or other attorneys in the office and I won't tell them my, my number and everyone comes with a different number, <laughs> you know? Um, so, but, it, and that just goes to show it's, you know, it's not, an, it's not a science. It's, you know, it's, it, it's a little, it's subjective. Totally subjective. I think one of the things that I find interesting too, from coming from, you're coming from a litigation background, you said you teach the anatomy of a lawsuit to your young adjusters or your new adjusters. And one of the things that people get frustrated with that, you know, attorneys have no control over, especially even in like Philadelphia, this area, and dealing with COVID is the court issues, you know, put aside just like, you know, the motion practices, like in New York, just to get things moving. Sometimes it just really, it takes time. Or, you know, we have some courts that, you know, you file motions for summary judgment and they just flat out deny them. There's no argument. There's no nothing. And, you know, I think it's hard for an adjuster because you're looking at expenses and reserves and why is the court doing this? You know, you made these arguments. What is it wrong? But I think I think, and I'm asking you, I think from having a litigation background, you understand those issues better. That's a, that's a really good point, Wendy. Um, I think for me, you know, looking at, you know, the motions that we're filing, what's the point of it? 
what's the purpose of it? You know, is it being used for, for a leverage purpose and negotiation purpose? Um, do we think it's actually going to be successful? I think that's one of the things that I've really instilled here since I, I've joined you to first is trying to get an opinion from council. All right, what are the chances for success on this motion? What's the purpose of it? Let's just not necessarily file a motion for the sake of filing a motion. I think it's important to instill that upon the adjusters. Why are we filing this? You know, is it used again up against, um, you know, the backdrop of a mediation? Um, is it used to, to kind of leverage a position or is it used because we have a legitimate argument that that's, you know, well-sounded in law um, or is it just to, you know, dr drive up costs? Um, so I really want the adjusters and, and the staff to understand the purpose of it, what the cost of the motion is, what the cost of the arguments are going to be and think about that and, ma and make sure we understand what our chance of success is going to be. Right. And I, I agree with that as well. I mean, like you look at a county like Philadelphia County, which is, you know, terrible um, as for motion practice and a lot of things. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I I've worked for clients that they, they want you to file every single motion regardless, you know, every discovery motion, every motion for summary judgment. And in Philadelphia, you could have a, a slam dunk motion in pay, on paper but no one's, it doesn't matter if no one's going to read it, you know, and you know, you file your motion, there's an opposition file that, you know, just garbage and it'll still get denied on the basis that there was an opposition file to your motion. So you really have to know your, your venue in addition to knowing your case and your facts and, you know, whether taking that step is really going to drive the ball forward or you just kick in the can, you know, to the side, just to do things. I, I agree a hundred percent. It's really knowing the venue. And I think, you know, coming from the plaintiff side, you know, I knew a lot of, um, you know, the judges um, and, you know, just having that experience, all right, which way is the judge going to lean per se? Um, you know, are we likely to get our, our, our motion granted or is this a, this a judge who historically never grants it or, or doesn't like to move cases along? Um, you know, again, with these discovery motions too, it's, it's, it's really hard in the times of, of COVID and, you know, it's, it's hard to get that time before a judge to, to even get authorizations or, or, you know, get that discovery in, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, we're encouraging, um, you know, our, our defense counsel, our, our panel firms to, to reach out and say, look, can we get this, you know, or are we actually going to have to file a motion? Like, take that extra step to do that. Right. And I think that goes a lot to a lot towards, again, what we we're talking about earlier, like working with your opposing counsel. You know, like I, I recently had an issue in a case that, you know, the counsel wasn't getting me responses to discovery. And I kept saying to the client and to him, like, look, I don't want to file a motion. That's just silly. Like, just give me an idea when you're going to get me your responses, because I don't want to waste my time, my client's time filing a discovery motion. Just, you know, we're not up against a hard, close deadline. So just you know, ballpark, can you get it to me in 60 days so we don't have to spend the time? Um, and usually, you know, that works. Unfortunately, sometimes you have counsel that just don't respond to those, even those like olive branches and you're left with no no choice. And that, that part frustrates me because I'm like, this shouldn't be that hard. You know, this just- Why do they want, why do they want to do the work when you're going to do the work, you know? Yeah. Until they're <laughs> under the pressure of having a motion, they'll just sit back and you file away, you know, that's- that's the way this goes, and unfortunately, in, in some cases. Um, I have kind of an interesting question for you, Mike. So, you know, back in the days of law school, way back when, when we were there, did you ever think that you would be in insurance 
because I know the answer that I would I would say if I was asked this question, but I'm curious to hear what you have, you have to say. I never for a million years thought I'd be in insurance. Actually, I wanted to be a sports agent, um, but I didn't want to move away from the Northeast. So um, I, I quickly realized that once I went to law school that I'd have to move to either LA or, or New York City to, to really do that. So um, I don't know, I'm kind of a homebody and, and wanted to stay in the Northeast. So um, I kind of just, you know, did, did some personal injury work. I learned a lot. It was a great experience, but um, you know, I, the insurance industry really gave me, a, afforded me a lot of opportunities. So I, I, you know, I think it's been great. That's that's how it started. I never had the idea. I wanted to be like, uh, you know, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> well, I mean, who really does have that idea? Like if you're in law school, you, you don't you don't think at least I didn't think at that time how how important insurance is and how big it is. And I had just had no just no clue at the time. I was like, no, I want to, you know, draft agreements. And, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't even know what the hell I wanted to do, but um, you just, you're clueless. And then once you get into the work, you realize, oh, wait, this is like 90% of the work is pretty much driven by, by this. And it's a huge industry um, and one with great growth. And I've talked to a lot of people in like in the insurance industry, like yourself, who are, more concerned about getting younger populations into insurance and, you know, promoting that it, this is a great career path. Um, and it's not like super boring. It's actually the opposite, but it's very hard for them to like, you know, recruit younger people because people don't think about it. I agree. I mean, we, we face that challenge with all the carriers that I've worked with, um, you know, just recruiting young talent. Um, you know, we've looked at different different types of talent, um, whether it's folks with, you know, maybe a criminal justice background who really want to get into that investigative piece, but, you know, maybe don't want to be a police officer or, or in that field. So uh, I've had great success with, um, you know, an adjuster who had that kind of background. And, you know, he wound up um, becoming an SIU adjuster, did a fantastic job and really had that curiosity developed. Um, you know, we've seen folks in retail just who have that customer service experience and know how to deal with folks and de-escalate situations. So, so we've looked there, but, but it definitely is a challenge. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that's really important is you train, you need, when you bring in somebody, you need to train them on different levels, uh, you know, of the business. You need to teach them about underwriting. You need to teach them about, um, you know, what an actuary does, about marketing, all of those things to, you know, broaden their horizons and, and you know, kind of give them a broader background. Maybe claims isn't for them, but they can still stay in insurance. So I think that's a good way to kind of foster that, that um, development and that growth in the insurance industry. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and I think, you know, when, when there people see or younger people see that, like how, how much growth potential there, there can be. And like, it's not, you know, it's not just one, one thing. There's so many, you know, opportunities available. Absolutely. Like I say, we, I say we take this piece, this report, this podcast, <laughs> we send it to the Dean at Roger Williams. I, I mean, I don't want to go to in the middle of a snowstorm here, but I would love to go up because I think that that, you know, when we do, I don't know if they call it career day or whatever up there, but you could, you know, I remember I was just telling my other half last day about, you know, I consider going into the JAG for a hot moment. I was like, you know, could get my law school loans paid. I would, you know, 
could be in and out. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, I could be stuck in Oklahoma City for five years and that's not really something I wanna do or worse, I could have gone to Iraq or you know, yeah. Afghanistan right. at, that, at the time that we, when we were in school. So this could be something we could <laughs> sell. I don't wanna say sell, but promote. I know it'd be, it would be great to have like an insurance law class, you know, uh, I know that there are some law schools that offer that I know that there are some undergraduate programs, but there's so much to learn. It's not just about torts. It's, it's not just about um, property. It's about, you know, insurance coverage and, 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 you know, interpreting contracts and, and, you know, civil procedure, it's all really rolled into one. So it would be a really interesting class. I mean, think about it. I mean, how many classes did you take in law school? that you used the information in those classes now? Or you, like, I mean, when I took civil procedure, I didn't understand what the heck I was ta- civil procedure was talking about until I actually started practicing. You know, I, I think very few things you carry on. Exactly. I, I was like, what, what is a civil procedure? But, you know, <laughs> once, once you start practicing and, and once you're, you know, once I even get into to insurance, I, I knew what this stuff was about, you know, and it was like, all right, this is, this is what, you know, discovery is and and this is what you know uh, a 12b6 motion is and this is what a motion for summary judgment is it made no sense to me you know when we first learned it it was maybe it was something that should have been you know second year or 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 something along those lines but it was just it made no sense to me at the time but it makes much better sense and torts obviously i mean torts is 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 important and and contractual law is really important too but um i don't know I'm, i'm surprised with some of the stuff even like taxes you know i i I do think that there is there are some things you know when we're talking about settlements and um you know types of cases whether it's a um personal and advertising injury uh, injury case you know discrimination case you know where we're looking at attorney's fees or or um you know where somebody's looking for um uh, lost wages as a result of one of those claims you know there's taxable elements to certain certain cases so it's it's important to kind of understand that and explain that. And even in the negotiation process, okay, well, this would be taxed or we could try to settle it this way. So, um, you know, I think I'm I'm a little surprised by, you know, all of the the classes and how they've kind of come into play. Yeah. Depending on what you remember. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, I think I heard this somewhere. (laughs) Sounds familiar. (laughs) I, I, I always, I, I just, I think there should be like, with the bait, you get the basis and there should be, I know there are a lot of practical classes, but I think there should be more an emphasis on pushing the, 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 the application of, you know, however it may be when, you know, in my revamp of the law school system, that's <laughs> the, the art of negotiation. I think that's, a, yeah. a, you know, I always say, you know, when you talk, I just actually talked to a university um, recently with another attorney of mine and I said, you know, best class I ever took was trial advocacy. Loved it. I, I've used it. I mean, but I knew I wanted to be in litigation. I knew that going in. I said, I knew I didn't want to do two things. I didn't want to do family law. I didn't want to do criminal law from the perspective of being a DA or a public defender. I do deal with it. I've done like some ARDs in the past, but I wanted to be a courtroom person. And I've done that in this capacity, but I love trial ad even even if you wanted to be a transactional attorney, I think that was like one of the biggest cl- like school classes that you could have. So they just need to add yeah. on to it, the art of negotiation. That's, that really, that helps you. You need to understand some psychology to it, but there is, you know, that understanding of like 
the case, the facts, jurisdiction, judges, you know, a lot of things. Right. I, I think one of the classes that really helped me was uh, mediation. Uh, we had a great professor um, and, and that really helped with, with negotiations as well. Just the art of negotiations, techniques, um, you know, what, what to look for in a mediation. So, you know, when I, when I basically, you know, one of the first cases that I, I got when, you know, I was doing plaintiff's work, I was just going go to a mediation and I, I kind of knew what to expect. You know, I, I was only in the firm for a couple of months and it's like, Go, go handle this. And I wasn't nervous. I was pretty confident um, based upon, you know, what I had learned in that class. And that was one of my favorite classes, all-time favorite classes. See, that was probably much more helpful than when I went to my first mediation. I asked like a, a more senior attorney. I'm like, oh, I have a mediation coming up. Like, what do I, what do, I do? What do I bring? And he's just like, crackers. It's <laughs> like, not helpful <laughs> at all. Who did you work for? <laughs> I, I will not name the person's yeah. name, but uh, that was the advice that was given to me. I brought more than crackers, but. <laughs> so circling back a little bit to just to, um, you know, your, your experience in claims um, or taking your experience from plain, being a plaintiff's attorney to claims um, and, you know, using that in like, what, what are your expectations of your outside counsel um, uh, when you're sitting on the claim side and they're working on one of, you know, your files at Utica or one of your past um, employers? I really expect responsiveness. Um, I, I think, you know, that's, that's really critical for us. Just, you know, having an idea of what's going on with the case. You know, I want cases moved, whether it's a case that we see for a trial track or it's a case that we're looking for discovery, you know, get us the information, keep, you know, keep us updated. I'm not, um, you know, a big fan of, 12 to 20 page reports about every single nuance that's going on. Just, just get us the critical information so that we can, you know, evaluate a case, look at a case, evaluate our own liability, evaluate the witness witnesses. And I think another thing that's really critical is getting a budget, knowing, um, you know, what we're looking at um, in terms of what it's going to cost. Um, I don't think enough carriers look at the cost benefit analysis of, of, of litigating. You know, there, there are a lot of these, you know, 20, $25,000 cases that, carriers are spending $50,000, $60,000 litigating. It makes no sense to me. Let, let's, let's see if you can resolve those cases. And that was one of the most frustrating things on the plaintiff side. You'd be looking at, at a case where you have a low policy. You know, it, it might only be a $25,000 policy. And, and, you know, you have fairly significant injuries. You know, it might be a soft tissue, but, it, it, you know, it's a significant car crash. And the case might have a fifteen dollars to $20,000 value, but the carrier's stuck at $5,000 and they, they just litigate these cases endlessly. And it's frustrating. Yeah. I usually recommend two budgets. I, so I, even if I always, I always give the budget for my clients either because I sit in GL and I sit in comp world. Um, but if the case goes on and depending on like the complexity of, you know, whether they're catastrophic claims or things like that, you at least want two budgets coming through. Sometimes more than that, because after discovery, you know, I had a case where woman, you know, this was seemed like a, you know, a minor case, something that could be settled. Um, injuries weren't that bad. And then they get cut. And then it left her in a worse condition. And at that point in time, I didn't just pick up the phone and call my client. I paid a visit. <laughs> I actually got on an airplane, made a visit, 
And you know, we talked about claims and stuff, but I mean, I, that was the front and center of this. Where is this going? You know, talk about jurisdiction, but budget, you know, I think it's, I think that's a really important tool that people don't understand in this industry. That's a really good point, Wendy. We, we've actually started where we want the two budgets. We want an initial budget through discovery, and then we want it updated upon completion of discovery. You know, do we need experts? Are, you know, are our experts going to be involved? Do we need to do an IME? Or is this the case that we can simply resolve? Um, and, and like you said, a lot of things can change. It might be a simple case, but again, somebody undergoes surgery or they have a complication or, or they're unable to work um, or return to work. And, you know, things change. So again, we've made it a point where we want an initial dis discovery budget and then, um, you know, get us a, a secondary budget. I mean, you can't anticipate what motions are going to need to take place. And sometimes you get that budget up front and, you know, attorneys have allocated for, you know, summary judgment motions. It's a rear end car accident. Why, why are we budgeting for a, a summary judgment motion in that? So I've also, I think that's another thing that my experience helps is, you know, telling a justice, all right, that's not a legitimate part of the budget. There's not going to be a summary judgment motion filed on this rear end car accident. We, we owe, you know, we're, we're legally liable, our clients legally liable. So take that out of the budget. Don't consider that, you know, and, and that shouldn't even be, be brought up. Um, so I, I really think that's a good point and that's a good way to look at it, having those two budgets. Because it affects your reserves. I mean, I, I Absolutely. see that all the time. And one of the things that you get phone calls on is, do we have enough reserves or we need to up the reserves? And at that point in time, like you should have an idea of where this litigation is going at that point. We talk about this a lot in our office that, you know, within the first 60 days, you should have, be able to have a good grasp of what, what's going on, what your viable exit strategies may be, what you may, may need, and, you know, experts or potential experts or no experts at all within 60 days, you should be able to identify at least the bare bones and have an idea of like, this is generally where I see this case going. Sure, there might be curveballs, um, but you're going to know like, Okay, is this a summary judgment case? Probably not. Maybe you, you should be able to identify those things right off the bat, or at least identify what you need to know to identify how you're, how you're going to resolve it. I agree 100%. So having said that, um, I, I probably know your response to this, but <laughs> I mean, what are your biggest pet peeves from, you know, from your outside counsel. I, I can imagine, you know, recommending a summary judgment motion on a rear end accident is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Where is your fault? <laughs> that's <laughs> Most definitely. I, I, I think that's a big one, you know, um, the summary judgment motion that's really not necessary. You know, I, I understand, again, a lot of it is for negotiation purposes, but, but you know, be clear about that. You know, that's why we're going to do it. You know, the demand is, is $2.5 million and this is only a $200,000 case. Maybe it's to get them within the ballpark a little bit more or make them work a little bit. But I, I think that's, I think that's a really big pet peeve of mine. You know, the other one is, okay, this is a defensible case. You know, this is a case that we can take and, and get at 80, you know, we have a 90% chance of getting a defense verdict and I, I wouldn't recommend anything more than $10,000. And then boom, on the steps of uh, the trial, I'll, we've got to pay $500,000 to get rid of that. Yeah. Um, be transparent up front. I think that's that's the most important thing. I, I'd much rather you say, look, there is some danger, there is some risk, Let, let's be aware of that here versus making that change, you know, three years down the road. I mean, it's, it's, it's critical in terms of reserve development. 
Um, you know, we, we don't want to have a situation where, you know, we, we have a reserve that's been set for a while and all of a sudden we have to explain why we're putting up, you know, $2 million, you know, two days before trial. Um, that's a real big pet peeve of mine. And doesn't that make you sort of sniff fear too? Like, why are you suddenly now, now want the money? Are you, now you don't feel confident? in either the case or you're scared to go to trial. Like I understand trial is always a, you know, it could be a toss, um, but you know, sometimes they are necessary, usually not. But you know, at that point I would be like, why, why suddenly you're changing? Exactly. <laughs> what, what, what changed? What did you not know? Or is it something that wasn't done? Did we, did we miss something? You know, I'm not trying to be critical here, but you know, I've seen situations where, Maybe we didn't depose somebody and we should have, or maybe we should have had that medical expert, or maybe we should have done the IME. There's a, sometimes there's some second guessing there. So, you know, that that's, I'd say that's my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. It could also be something too. I had a trial a couple of years ago and uh, pretty experienced uh, plaintiff's counsel uh, really went to trial because the demand was just outrageous. And I said, on my worst day, even if that jury came in with this number, you still win. I mean, that's still so much less than what they were. And they would not, they would not shake it. And then you get to the steps and it wasn't fear. I think it was more, I know what I'm going to have to put in from a plaintiff's perspective. I mean, you could appreciate this. Like you usually work on a contingency fee. So like, if you lose this, like, you don't get anything and you're going to put all this time into trial and they, you know, the work that goes in, the, the dep doctor's depositions, the videotape and all that. So maybe now we try to, you know, work stuff out. You know, I ended up trying it and won, but I just, you know, at that point in time, like that's where I, I saw the wheels clicking like, Oh yeah, you're really going to make me get into this courtroom and you're really going to make me work for my money. Um, I actually have a question about this because I, I, I wonder this often because I think different um, carriers have different feelings about, about it, but binding high-low arbitrations, you know, I've had clients who love them. I have clients who loathe them. Um, from a practice perspective, sometimes I think they, for the right case, they're, they're a really good option, um, but people seem to have very strong feelings on both sides of the spectrum. So <laughs> I'm a thumbs down on that one done it twice in my life and it was very rare and it's not something maybe, I, maybe I like. I've maybe I've just had good results but yeah what are your feelings on them I, I've never had really good results with them um just you know the, the arbitrate arbitrator wants business um but they usually tend to favor the plaintiff side you know if you're, if you're going to do an arbitration it's very rare that you get a defense verdict uh, I, I've seen them happen but it's 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 rare um, so you, from a carrier perspective, you have to know that going in. Um, I, I can think of one recently where, again, the attorney was reasonable. He said his client was unreasonable and he agreed to very reasonable parameters. Um, it was, you know, like a parameter between 10 and, and $75,000. So we got that case resolved. And, and, and again, it was very reasonable parameters. It was a way of kind of, you know, getting us to that forum by, by agreeing to, to those parameters. And again, came right in the middle where we thought it was going to come. Um, it was just a client who, you know, wouldn't drop below the $75,000. Um, you know, he wanted to get something in his client's pocket and, and when we got that case, you know, resolved that at the arbitration, but um, generally not something I like to do. Yeah. I, 
I, like I said, I've had, I've had a bunch of really good results with them. I've had two defense verdicts on them with zero lows. So I'm just hanging my hat on those two results. That worked out really well. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I, I'm biased in a, a, that they, they can be fair. Um, but everyone. Yeah. Has... Sorry. I didn't mean to no, cut you ahead. off. I, I think like one of the, one of the, the things is if you can save your exposure or save, you know, uh, an extra contractual exposure above the policy limit. I mean, th- there's a consideration there. If somebody's willing to, you know, maybe save something off the policy, we might consider it in those situations. I think that's another good use of it, um, you know, to kind of make sure that we're protecting the interest of our, our, our insured. You know, if, if you're looking at, well, the verdict value it might be, you know, 1.2, $1.3 million, and, and you can get an agreement where it's either within the policy or, you know, maybe $900,000 and, you know, a, a high low of, you know, 100 to 900. I, I think in those cases, that's something that we, we yeah. strongly consider. So switching, switching gears a little bit went, you know, you and I had talked on the phone uh, a few weeks ago and we were, you, we were talking about how, you know, Utica is a smaller carrier um, and there's certain challenges that you may face at a smaller carrier that you won't necessarily, um, you know, come, come to heads with at a larger carrier. Um, so, I mean, how is it, I mean, you, you worked at some larger carriers and now, now you know, Utica is a little bit smaller. Um, how is it different for you? Well, there's, there's some good things. There's some bad things. I think one of the challenges that we have is, you know, we're a small company. We have a small staff. So, um, you know, we don't have the ability to um, maybe uh, send out as many folks in the field. Um, you know, when we have a cat loss, it, it can be quite challenging. Uh, th- this summer, we had significant um, losses due to Tropical Storm Isaias. We write a lot of business in um, the New York metropolitan area in Connecticut, and a lot of homes were impacted by Azias, which you know was not predicted to be a, a major storm. And we had over 1,600 claims as a result of this. And wow. um, I have a claims a property department that's that's only seven seven property adjusters and and a and a manager. So that presented some significant challenges. You know, we couldn't get folks on the ground. Um, but from it, you know, we learned, we, we put together a, a cap plan. We've done some cross training of our liability adjusters to have them jump in. Um, and we utilize and we rely heavily on independent adjusters. So, you know, we, we looked at which adjusters were, were mobile and able to get out in the field and get to our customers within, you know, 24 hours and, and, and really help out versus some of those, um, independent adjusters that, you know, might've taken a week to reach out. Um, so that was a big, big challenge, you know, just size and scope. When you have something catastrophic, there, there are definite challenges. And it's, it's really good to have a, a cap plan in place, um, something that you can enact when, when there's a significant loss. Um, so, and you got to keep updating that. Um, and, and that was really critical for us. And I think that's so great though, too, that, you know, you know how to use your resources, and, you know, you, maybe your litigation claims aren't super busy, so you can, you know, use those resources where they're, where they're needed at the time. And I think, you know, that's just something that, you know, a smaller outfit has to be able to, to do. I mean, it's your job is not just your one job. <laughs> you, know, you have to put on a few hats. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we, we part of our plan is we're going to um, cross train underwriters and some of our marketing reps to, to jump in and, you know, take calls, answer claims, issue payments, um, and, you know, train them in the system. So we, we've implemented that plan kind of an all hands on deck approach. Um, you know, I worked at some of the big carriers, they had a cat team and, you know, they had 200 adjusters that they would deploy to an area and, you know, it was 
great. You'd get cap pay as, as a cat adjuster, but, mm-hmm. and half the time you'd be kind of sitting around waiting for the cat to happen. And um, we just don't have that um, capability being such a small carrier. Is there one particular like insurance that you really liked? I mean, I know you're doing like some cat claims, but from your other days, are you kind of all the same to you or? I think it's really all the same. I, I love general liability claims. I, I just, you know, there's something different, something new all the time. Um, I also like the the bad faith element too. Um, you know, I think again, coming from the plaintiff's bar, you know, we had to get creative. Sometimes we'd have a small policy in, you know, Rhode Island, um, you know, we, we would always quote a Sermily versus Allstate and we try to trigger extra coverage. And, and that was one of the things that um, really spent a lot of time on and really I learned um, from, you know, my, my boss at, when I worked in private practice, you know, just kind of trying to trigger and be creative. You know, we only have a $25,000 policy, but we have, you know, a fractured femur. Um, and so I, ha- you know, I, I try to be aware of attorneys who are trying to set up the insurance carriers in those cases too. You know, they send limited information and it's, it's a time limit demand. And, uh, you know, you don't have the ability to, you know, properly investigate the claim and you have to make a quick decision uh, on some of those cases. It's not so much in the commercial world, but maybe in the auto world or even some homeowners cases where you have smaller, smaller policies. So um, I really was always interested in, in that uh, specific uh, field and, and space. And I would say like, I, I think I've talked to a bunch of people that they're getting those time limit demand letters, you know, is one of those things that keep, keeps them up at night. <laughs> 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 they, they always come in like, uh, you know, right before you're going on vacation, um, you, you know, right before Christmas, yeah, when, so, when they know we're yeah. going to be out of the office. Yeah. And then there's always, a, I, I've heard people say there's always a fear when it gets to like maybe a younger, more, less experienced adjuster and they might not know like how, how to handle it too um, and may not, you know, respond as appropriately <laughs> as they should. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, you, you spoke a little bit about like, you, you know, some of the um, issues that a smaller carrier may have as to like responding to like, you know, catastrophic losses, but what about benefits? I mean, I imagine, you know, there's a lot less red tape um, and, you know, you can probably run through whatever channels you need a lot easier than you may at like a much larger big box carrier. That's a really good point, Megan. Um, I, I, you know, we've gone to mediations where, you know, we, we've roundtabled the claim, um, and, and usually, you know, we like to get multiple input from multiple people, whether it's, you know, myself, the supervisors, the adjusters, we like to invite multiple adjusters to, to participate and get ideas. And people have varying degrees of experience. They have v- various backgrounds, so they might have a different take on something. So, you know, we, we come up with, um, you know, a value for our evaluation, and we give the authority. And it's frustrating when, you know, you have a carrier that might be a bigger carrier and you have to go all the way up to the vice president um, at that carrier and they come with only $20,000 in authority. And it's, it's a case where there's a significant exposure. It's very, very frustrating. Um, you know, it wastes a lot of time at the mediations. I, I've gone to multiple mediations 
where you know we've come prepared we've come with the appropriate amount of authority and you know we, we have other carriers who, who don't have the authority and it's just it's not just posturing you know the media says look they legit don't have the authority it's not their way of negotiating that they don't have the authority they had to make calls at six or seven o'clock at night to to the vice president to get that authority so it can be very very frustrating you know i've seen a lot of cases and you know in, in bad bad faith verdicts or um UIM cases where carriers haven't stepped up or, or don't send somebody with authority and it can be a huge waste of time and it's it's highly frustrating. It's more money. It's more money. It's more money. And that's why I think that's that's you know goes back to what you're saying about budgeting, you know, reserves, things like that. If you get that on the onset, it, you shouldn't be at the end of your case. You shouldn't be getting into that mediation realm and you're like, I, I don't have any authority. It's like I, I've been telling you this, like you have to see this is this, you're, this is this facts of the case you're not you're not going to get it it's not going to go any other way and there there can't be some anything more annoying that if you've done everything you were supposed to do you set out your budget you you're nothing blew up you know you stayed within your parameters you have your authority you're at the mediation you have code of you know co-defendant there and it doesn't resolve because you know, they can't get their ducks in the row. And now you've wasted it just exactly what Wendy said. You've wasted all this time and money. And you, it wasn't because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. <laughs> and, you know, and then suddenly now you're talking, oh, well, can we just get out? And then, it, and, you know, now you're trying to package it so um, you can help your insured and resolve it, but it's not the ideal resolution for the whole, the whole case. It, it's not. I, in those cases, I like to send the mediation bill directly to the carrier and say, you wasted my time. Yeah. Uh, here's the bill. Why don't you pay it? We're not paying it or pay us back. You wasted our time. Um, you know, and it, it gets noticed, you know, and I, I think that's a good approach that I've seen on cases where, again, they showed up not prepared. And here's the bill. You know, we, we came ready. You wasted the entire mediation. Um, it wasn't fruitful. Take care of it, you know, and I'm not afraid to do that. I think that I think that's a good approach. I think another thing, too, um, is just the approachability, you know, with a smaller carrier, you know, I, I I work with all all of the the claims adjusters, the the supervisors, the claims manager, and and just having the ability for folks to come into my office and ask for ideas and talk about a case, um, that's not afforded at some of the bigger carriers. You, you know, some some of the carriers that you know have remote offices, they never even see the vice president of claims or, or you know whatever the claims leader is or the assistant vice president. Um, and there's just so many tiers that you have to go through to get authority. So. Um, I, again, I think that that's another thing. And it can be intimidating to, to go see somebody that you've never met or, you know, you have to go ask for a million dollars. I don't like to operate in that in that sense. I, you know, I like to, to encourage folks to come in and let's talk about a case. If you, if you see the case valued at a million dollars, let's let's talk about it. Let's figure out why is that a reasonable evaluation and let's try to get the case resolved. And I think that same sentiment runs over to, to law firms, at least in my experience. Like, you know, we're not a huge law firm, but I think, you know, it's much the, the atmosphere, you, you can collaborate much more because it's not like, oh, I don't know that person, you know, in that office down the hall. Like, you know who everyone is and, you know, everyone's willing to work together. And I think when you have that collaborative atmosphere um, and you can work as a team to get thing, things done, the whole machine kind of operates more smoothly. Um, and, you know, and, and having that feeling that you, you know, they can come into your office or, or whoever's office and say, look, this, you know, this is what's going on. You know, how, how do I handle it? I think it's, you know, speaks volumes to just the whole operation. 
So Mike, if you were to tell a, a young attorney or somebody that's a young person that's looking into going into claims, um, what would be like the, you know, the best, you know, advice that you would give them? I think, I think claims is a really good career for you. You know, it really can hone your negotiation skills. It can hone your um, advocacy skills. It can hone, you know, your skills on um, civil procedure, torts. Um, so there's a, there's a lot there. We've had a lot of adjusters who started out at claims adjusters and, you know, went to law school or were going to law school as claims adjusters. So I think, you know, either way, whether you come in as an attorney um, or you, you, you know, you go and get your JD, um, you know, and you pass the bar as an adjuster, I, I think there's advantages to it. I mean, it's a very, um, it, it's an industry with a lot of growth potential. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of skill sets that, that you can utilize that, that law background, your, you know, your ad advocacy background, um, you know, with. So I would certainly encourage it. You know, um, there are a lot of attorneys out there, um, you know, and it's, it's hard to kind of, um, you know, get into, you know, firms sometimes, you know, there's a lot of competition. Um, and so it's just another thing that maybe people don't think of, um, you know, when they're going to law school, going into the insurance industry. So I, I think that's something that you should give some thought to, um, you know, for folks who don't want to litigate, um, it's another good opportunity. You know, I, I had, um, in the past, I had a, a working mother who, who, you know, litigated for a couple of years, but, you know, as her kids grew up, she didn't want to do that. You know, she wanted to have something that, that afforded her the opportunity to kind of be more active with her children. And, and so she did that. And she was a fantastic adjuster, very, very bright. She was a really great attorney. Um, and, you know, this is the, the career path that she wanted to do. And, you know, she, she's still handling litigated claims and, and you get to make the call. You're, we're the ones with the authority too. You know, it's, that's something that, you know, a lot of folks don't necessarily realize, you know, we give the authority to the attorneys saying, okay, this is what you're, you're getting that attorney from. When I was a plaintiff's attorney, I never realized it worked that way. You know, I always thought the money came from, you thought you know, it comes from my pocket? It comes from your pocket. <laughs> um, so like that, that was one of the things that, you know, you, you quickly realize. Um, so you're the one really calling the, the shots and controlling what's going on and, and dictating, um, you know, the case. So it's, it's really a good way to kind of, you know, get that understanding, especially if you want to be a, a tort lawyer or even a personal injury lawyer, it gives you that opportunity or, or want to become a defense attorney. You know, it, you, you understand the business, you understand what goes on and having that knowledge is, is critical. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point too. Like you, you, the, the claims adjuster is really driving the, the litigation. I mean, we, we provide our, our best recommendations um, and we do our evaluations, but ultimately the decision is, is, is up to you. Um, and all we can do is say this, this, you know, these are your options or this is what we recommend, but you know, we can't do it if you don't want us to. Right. <laughs> At least we shouldn't be. <laughs> right. And that's one of the things I, you know, I want to instill too. I want, you know, the adjusters to, to drive the case versus the attorney, you know, filing the, the motions for summary judgment on a rear end car accident. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. You, you know, again, we should be the ones driving the, driving the, the bus per se. So um, I, I want to end this on, because we, we're running a little bit out of time, but outside of, you know, work, you know, what, what does Mike do for fun? <laughs> I have, I have two great boys. Uh, they keep me very, very active. I have, uh, um, he'll be seven actually next week. My youngest son is Alex. My oldest son is Jake. He's nine. 
my wife has been very, very supportive, Jess. Um, so shout out to all, all these guys. I love sports. Um, so I, you know, I'm very active with my kids. Both my kids play um, basketball, baseball, and football. I, I've coached their basketball and baseball teams. Uh, it just, I, I love playing sports and, and watching them and, you know, spending time with them. Um, you know, coaching has always been one of my passions. Um, in the past, I, I've been a baseball umpire as well. Um, so you kind of have to mediate those disputes on the, on the athletic field. Uh, but I've kind of retired from that now to, to actively coach my kids. Um, I, you know, I, I love following sports. I'm a big Providence College uh, Friar basketball fan. Love, love the Red Sox, love the Patriots. Uh, I, you know, we live in an area... Without Brady, you got Tim uh, going on there. Uh, it's a little tougher this year. A little tougher this year. I'm an Eagles fan. You don't have to tell me. Oh, I know, but I I, I still have nightmares about that Super Bowl two years ago. I said when we were in law school. Uh, you know, you well, you would have been out that year because I'm a year behind you. When the Eagles played the Patriots, I called my landlord. We had a nice white house by the water, and I told him, I said, Vic. If the Eagles beat the Patriots, <laughs> I'm going to paint the house green and white, and I'll repaint it before I move out and I graduate. <laughs> it didn't happen. But. It didn't happen. See, if you were there in 2018, though, you could have painted it green and white. Yeah. That would have been a big job. <laughs> I don't care. That's how excited I was. <laughs> I went home to go watch the Super Bowl, but I uh, was up there at the time. Yeah, the, I, the first Patriots Super Bowl, I was, uh, I think it was my first year in law school. So that, you know, we, we were an underdog, weren't mm -hmm. expecting anything. You know, the Patriots were terrible up until then. Um, really, you know, in, in my lifetime, um, they went, I guess, you know, 97, I, we had, we had a chance, but, you know, just, I didn't have any, any uh, aspirations of a Super Bowl championship at that time. Yeah, but you had the Red Sox that broke the curse. It was 2004. You know? Yeah, I remember. I was <laughs> yep. up there. They burned the mailbox down the street. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I was like, who burns the mailbox? <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for coming on. Uh, you know, I love, I really love talking to you today. Um, and you know, you're welcome to come on any other time. You, if you've anything else you want to chat about, we'd happy to have you. No, I appreciate it, Megan. I appreciate it, Wendy. It was great. Great to be a part of this. Um, did a great job. I, I'm really thrilled. I'd be happy to come back on. And the only requirement is before you come on next time, you have to go back and find some dirt on Wendy and just dish it to us, please. Oh, oh boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> find some old yeah. pictures or something. <laughs> well, you know, in the insurance industry, we can always find dirt, right? Probably. <laughs> so, I'll have to go back, back to one of our colleagues. I know where I can get the dirt. <laughs> yeah, we have a few connections. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. But yeah, in fact, I talked to Dan... Um, Giannotti, he's down in Tennessee, which is our home office is in Tennessee. So he just got back into practice. Huge Eagles fan. Huge Eagles. Oh, yeah. Fan That's right how there. we bonded. I was like, <laughs> I had like him, Seth. I had like very few people that were like huge Eagles, Philadelphia fans. It was great. Watch all our sports together. <laughs> That's right. Well, have a, I, and have a safe drive home today. Drive carefully. It's, Hey, you better get going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, got, I got some time. I got some time. It's not supposed to hit until seven or eight o'clock tonight. Oh, okay. Uh, we're looking at like, soon. Yeah. yeah, like Wendy, you're going to, I think you're supposed to get like a foot. Yeah. Is it, is it yeah. starting to snow yet down there? No, just no. cloudy. Right. And... Same yeah. thing here. 
my, my kids are looking out the window waiting and I think they're pretty disappointed <laughs> where we are. But. No snow days anymore for our kids. They're all remote. So I know, I know that's what I told them too bad. We got a, we got a court morning, you know, I actually have court in a little bit virtual. Everything's pretty much virtual. Uh, I think I've worn a suit three times since this pandemic happened. I went from every day to like now like three times and uh, they were giving snow warnings out and I'm like, for what? On the, if you can't show up, you can't get on your Zoom. Where are you? <laughs> either the judge or the clerk or the magistrate, you know, they, they've either got to go in, you know, a lot of them are going in. So, and there are going to be high winds. Power could go out. Yeah. That's right. We, we always lose power. So hopefully, knock on wood, we'll be all right. You know, five mile an hour wind, we have no power at home. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thanks, Mike. Thank you. I really appreciate it.